Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's the Wonky Show. Uh, it's a big week for numbers as Hisa and UCAS fill us in on size and shape. We'll get across all that. Uh, we're also thinking about assessment, the plight of third-year undergrads, QAA research on blended learning, and Dame Shirley Pierce gives Debbie the lowdown on the TEF. It's all coming up. No, but I think it's interesting because sometimes when you see um, ministers or even people in the sector lord over hitting these targets earlier, um, it's it's not easy to, um, you know, see behind. Well, it is easy to see behind the blinds a little bit and see that the infrastructure is not there to support all of these students. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and ambushed by a cake for our work meeting, as usual, three fabulous guests. Uh, in South East London, Hilary Gebiababayo is NUS Vice President for Higher Education. Hilary, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, um, it's so good to be back on the podcast. I was literally going to say ambushed by cake. I was, you, <laughs> you've taken it from me, Jim. I have no other highlight than, I don't know what to say. Yeah, quite a moment, moment, wasn't it? Uh, And just outside of Tamworth, Laurie Phipps is Senior Research Lead at JISC. Laurie, your highlight of the week, please. I literally had a line where I was going to say, walking into the kitchen and being ambushed by Kate, (laughs) my my wife. And and again... Pressure's on, Debbie. Yeah, but I I, I was speaking yesterday to um, somebody outside of the UK, and that relates to the the data I'm talking about later, about traveller participation in higher education in Ireland. And I was trying to find the data for the UK. So talking to him about what's going on in Ireland, about traveller participation, has been my highlight of the week. Um, Tom Farrelly. Maybe more on that later. And in Enfield, Debbie McVitie is one editor Debbie your highlight of the week please well as uh, as monkey colleagues will know my my three-year-old's been getting me up extraordinarily early in the morning recently um but but this week he got a little cold so he slept in until seven o'clock so wins all round and I think and I think I think you'll see that reflected in the quality of writing on the site well there you go so yes we start this week with numbers number wang Hisa and UCAS have dumped a bunch of data on us Laurie what does it tell us um well it tells me that I need to speak to David Kernahan more often because he's he's my go-to person whenever it comes to anything to do with data. Um, but the things that really interested me is, I mean, there's been slight increases in student participation. Um, but I was looking at the 50% drop in students from the EU, and also the increase in students participating in uh, that have got free school meals. Um, that's that's gone up to a record high. So those are the sorts of things that um, that really interested me from the data. And it's only been released this week, so we're still sort of unpicking what it all means. And so I'm going to be really honest and say most of this, I'll be watching what David Kernahan says about it over the coming weeks on on the 1KHE site because, you know, I need a good source that uh, that can interpret it for me. Um, so that's, that's my my sort of take on it. I would say that participation is something that I'm really, um, really concerned about. And as I said in my intro, I've been speaking to Tom Farrelly at MTU in Ireland, and they're doing loads of work around traveller participation. And so I tried to look at the the data 
for traveller participation in the UK. And it's so small as to be um, insignificant. It's something like 3 to 4% of travellers actually go on to higher education. So I was trying to pull apart this data and find out, um, you know, where those areas are and what the problems are and what the barriers to participation are in, in the UK. Hmm. It's interesting, this, Debbie, isn't it? Because when, 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 when we get a lot of data like this, the, it, it takes a couple of days for the kind of narratives to emerge in terms of the kind of, you know, the big, you know, what's really going on here in the sector. And of course, there's a backdrop to this year's set of narratives in the form of a giant global pandemic. Well, and I think also a lot of people have quite a lot of skin in the game of kind of of, of owning different different kinds of narratives, you know. So you'll see um, kind of that sector level data about uh, you know the re- record increase in, in participation among, among less advantaged groups, which of course is is a win. But um, as Nika shown on the site this morning, there's uh, you know this it's actually a lot more interesting to dive into the kind of subject patterns, provider patterns, see which institutions those students are going to. Um, and one of the things that Dika sort of sounded the alarm on, although it's not perhaps as kind of obvious as you might suggest that. Or, you know, as you might think that um, higher achieving middle class students are going to the most selective providers and, and, and sort of seeing the, wide, the widening of, of, of what used to be the binary divide. It's not, it's not that straightforward. There's certainly different patterns going on, but there is that still, there's still that quite strong trend. Um, and, you know, and, and, and DK's point is, is that, you know, just because we have expanded higher education, which is, of course, you know, a, a good thing in the round, we, we still need to pay attention to, to the, you know, the, the patterns of participation within that. Mm. Hillary, uh, one of the things that uh, both Nadim Zahawi and uh, Michelle Donnellan were popping corks over on, on the Twitter was the hitting of the international education strategy target on the number of international students uh, 10 years early, <laughs> which is quite a feat. And, you know, uh, uh, at the risk of being, you know, Mr. Misery on Twitter, I, I said... Should it, are we sure that we can like you do have to put in interesting types of kind of support don't you to make sure that you can cope with you know students for whom english is not their first language necessarily you know and actually these are more international you know, more, you know less european and more international international than perhaps we've had in the past is that rapid sudden increase in in international students great or or should we be concerned yeah, I mean, to, to know, actually, I have seen that you've been trying to be less, um, less misery guts <laughs> on Twitter. So fully appreciate that. Um, no, but I think it's interesting because sometimes when you see, um, ministers or even people in the sector lord over hitting these targets earlier, um, it's, it's not easy to, um, you know, see behind, well, it is easy to see behind the blinds a little bit and see that the infrastructure is not there to support all of these students. Um, often these students come into university campuses, um, really really lost like you know we haven't necessarily had the traditional inductions over the pandemic we haven't necessarily seen um international students get the comprehensive support that they have been needing um for years and years and so when we're celebrating that we've hit targets 10 years early we're still what 10 years behind in actually supporting international students to really be able to um you know to be a part of UK higher education, but to actually be supported through it. And, and we see this in how many international students talked about poor mental health, talked about um, issues with finances in the pandemic and before. Um, and so I think it's, it's very um, sort of, first of all, preemptive, but also um, quite... I don't know what the word is. It's quite misleading, actually, that, you know, you'd celebrate this target, but not actually acknowledge the support that is needed so desperately um, for international students. 
Mm. Yeah, interesting, interesting. We don't really have the kind of ways of monitoring. Laurie, on the on the kind of domestic front, are, are there any kind of narratives here about, you know, uh, who's who's done well, who has, a, you know, what's going on with widening access? Are there any kind of clear stories from the data yet? So uh, just just looking at it, I was looking at the free school meals one, and, and that's an increase. But then, of course, we've got a whole load of people that have been furloughed during the pandemic. And obviously, there's going to be an increase in support to poorer families during the pandemic as well. So that, that could account for the increase. I'm not sure that a lot of people will be wanting – well, a lot of people that are in poverty are going to be worried about incurring more debt going to university, I think, during the pandemic. Because it's now become such a hot topic being in that, that situation – that it, it might be putting people off. I don't know. And so, as I say, it, it's a case of unpicking that data now. And it's it's also the fact that this is a really weird two years that we've been through. And I'm more interested in a longer-term trend of widening participation. You know, it, it, we're at 43%, and I really would – I mean, I've always wanted us to be a lot higher than that. I'm just one of those people that really believe in widening participation. Why don't we have a higher target? Yeah. Debbie, you know, this is a demand-led system and, you know, what we're seeing here is quite a bit of kind of demand uh, in the system and lots of, you know, kind, kind of patterns of demand. But but lots of people I talk to in the sector are worried then about kind of put, putting long-term bets on expenditure on, if you like, supply because they don't know how the post-Augur review settlement's going to come out and so on. We're, we're, and we're trapped, aren't we, in, 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 in a kind of funding settlement that we're, it's very, very temporary at the moment, but demand patterns that are doing what we thought they would do. They are growing and they will continue to grow through the decade. I think I think when you're looking at kind of demand versus supply, you're, also, you're talking about a number of different things, aren't you? You're talking about um, the sorts of students that come um, with the sorts of tariffs that they have and the, the sorts of courses that they want to study, the sorts of, uh, and the sorts of subjects they want to study as well, and then, you know, what, what they make a want to do afterwards. Um, and I think that's always something that is very hard for a government to really meaningfully map out. I think being something that jumped out at me was... Um, and this may just be that, you know, that, you know, we need to look at, you know, Laurie's point about longer term trends and think about how things trickle through the system. But if you look at patterns of subject demand, um, and DK's done some modelling on the site and you know, the numbers of, of subject applications and acceptances, you can see, um, that, you know, some subjects are really kind of beginning to tail off and have been kind of doing so for 10 years. And some subjects are sort of continuing to hold strong and kind of, and sort of mapping, um, existing demand. And of course, some, lots, lots of subjects are sort of bigger than other subjects. Um, the government has, has sort of said, oh, we're going to put extra funding into some subjects and, 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 and remove it from others. Um, and, and kind of try and put incentives in place to get students to choose one thing or another. I think really, really the, the question comes down to, um, Will the high cost subjects be able to, you know, will it, will it, be, will it be kind of pragmatically and economically possible for universities to continue to deliver high cost subjects where there to be an auger response that, that cut the headline fee without any kind of supplementary public funding into those subjects? I don't think the government wants to do that, to be honest, because those very high cost subjects are the ones that the government deems strategically important, et cetera, et cetera. So I suspect that won't happen. I think there's, there's a worry about cutting, um, cutting off kind of tariff entry, uh, you know, minimum thresholds for tariff entry, um, and the kind of interplay of that with the, with sort of student outcomes and so on. Um, but actually, I also think that a lot of the kind of action in this space will be not in that, in the, in the bit where no one's looking, which will be on the kind of the shorter courses, the part-time provision, um, you know, the sort of, you know, the topping up of the skills and lifelong learning. And that's where I think lots of universities would really love to get clarity from government because they're really poised to kind of do some quite interesting stuff in their regions and really kind of want to make sure that the kind of support and funding will be there. And I think in that sense, you know, universities are basically aligned with government. It's just whether the government can kind of, you know, get Zarsen to gear and kind of set out exactly what universities can expect in terms of support. Mm. Now, Hillary, there's a, there's another tail in the data here, which is grade inflation. 
So, um, you know, just before the pandemic, there was a sense that OFS wandering around with its sabre, having a rattle, was kind of slowing it at least. And then suddenly, in year one of the pandemic, no detriment policy, safety nets, you know, a lot of grade inflation. And the assumption is, well, you know, lots of people are given extra attempts. Of course, there's going to be a bit of grade inflation. And and, and the OFS this week has put, put a press note out saying, well, we're very worried that this grade inflation has now been baked into the system. And I was reading it thinking, yes, but it's it's not as if the pandemic stopped in, in May 2020, is it? Like, the, the, we have still had lots of disruption and we have been making it more straightforward for people to have extra attempts and so on. I mean, what's your take? Should we should we get rid of all those structural mitigations because we're now back to normal? Or, or do we still need to be correcting for the kind of disruption that students have had? Yeah, so I, I think it's a few things, right? I think it's, first of all, I, I sometimes feel like when we hear the narratives around grade inflation, sometimes people talk about it as if it's this sort of big, ugly, bad thing that students are doing better in in their in in their in their degrees like they they see it as it as this sort of like big bad thing how do we stop students getting better grades and therefore like going off into the world with these great grades and and that meaning that it loses value or whatever and it's like no first of all students are doing better because there's better teaching there's you know better um better access to resources that allows them to learn in in newer and and different ways and so sometimes i think whenever i hear grade inflation I'm like goodness me like we constantly talk about a great UK higher education system but we don't want students to get great grades um because apparently that's a bad thing but putting that to the side I feel like you're exactly right it's it's one of those things where you know students have students have not only been through a pandemic now in the past few months um they've gone through um all the disruption that comes around with industrial action which i'm not necessarily opposed to industrial action at all um but that's happened as a result of many other things going on in the sector and for you know for there not to be an awareness that students have been disrupted a lot and still are being disrupted by the pandemic and there are other things going on in the sector like staff not getting pay like um you know not fair pensions and stuff like that it's it's just preposterous that we would think that you know these mitigations that were put in that were really helpful to students we saw the impact on attainment gaps in some area or awarding gaps in some er areas rather we saw how much students um were you know less stressed about assessments in the ways that they are traditionally because those mitigations actually were needed beyond um, the pandemic and bringing them in in the pandemic was necessary and important and continues to be necessary but we can't just think that the sector is ever going to go back to whatever normal um whatever normal people are trying to get back to to move away from those really really important mitigations for students well, fascinating stuff. As ever, DK has a whole bunch of charts that you can play with on the site. Uh, take a look. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, it's Emily Dixon here calling in from Access HE, the division of London Hire. In my comment piece, even if BTECs disappear, the students taking them won't. What I wanted to say was that it would be wishful thinking to imagine that replacing BTECs with T-levels would solve all the problems BTEC holding students face in one fell swoop. We know from a lot of recent research that I go over in the article that BTEC holding students face worrying continuation and progression gaps in higher education. But we can't assume that new restructured practical based qualifications will wipe these gaps out. We also have to remember that these gaps for BTEC students are still worth solving even if T-levels replace BTECs because these students still exist. 
We mustn't let the names of the qualifications loom larger in our heads than the difficulties these students face in our universities when we try to solve these problems. Now, meanwhile, back in 2021, we set about talking to people about assessment. What was this all about, Debbie? As with so many things, uh, it, it's probably fair to say the pandemic uh, accelerated changes that were already happening. And, uh, this, and, and this, this, is, this is something that we spotted when um, in our just, you know, in, in, in talking to people and, and, and the, the sorts of kind of conversations that were emerging from the sector was that there was this focus on assessment. Some of this was about uh, what Hillary was talking about, about you know, detriment policies and mitigations and what the impact was on on grades. And um, and some of this was because people had already been looking at, you know, you know, the decades and decades worth of assessment research that suggests that really, um, you know, timed in-person exams is maybe one, one sort of legitimate way to assess in some circumstances, but perhaps wasn't kind of meeting the needs across the piece of all the different kind of courses and subjects that, um, and skills and, and sort of... And, and, and and opportunities to kind of learn things that, that, that students might, might enjoy. So we decided just to spend a bit of time as part of our ongoing work with Adobe, looking at the kind of how curriculum is changing and, and, and what that looks like in the digital age. Um, just diving in a little bit to how universities are thinking about assessment change, um, what's driving that, what, you know, what, what the kind of positive consequences are. But specifically, given just how difficult assessment is to change, because it's this incredibly totemic thing, it's got lots of kind of, uh, you know, sort of issues around kind of standards um, and expectations. Lots of lots of assessments are kind of set by external organisations, or, or the, you know, there's very there's very strong kind of codes that you have to. Uh, apply to and of course it's very culturally kind of totemic inside universities as well Um, and it's quite a high risk thing to change so we were looking both at what sorts of changes are coming and what people are thinking about but also how they're kind of driving that change on their campuses and 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 how you actually do that in practice Um, there's a big write-up on the site this week but I would say there's sort of two things one is is that it, the kind of diversity of, of things that, that universities are trying to do is really interesting. So, you know, the diversification of, of, of types of assessments, so trying to move away from exams and essays into students producing podcasts or videos or, uh, you know, doing sort of projects, you know, there's lots of different ways you can assess students. And there's some really kind of good, good work on this um, that, that came out during the pandemic, particularly when it became impossible to do the kind of classic exam format. But there's also loads of interesting stuff about, about student wellbeing, about um, the idea about how do you, how do you move away from this idea that by assessing students you're sort of essentially putting them under the microscope and asking them to perform a certain way and what kind of what are the what are the impacts then on their on their well-being and their sense of themselves and their their engagement with learning and um, thinking about assessment for employability mobilizing more authentic assessment um, and, and and looking at program level assessment as well so rather than assessing module by module every little detail you know trying to trying to look across the whole program and say what are students learning across all of this and how can they kind of use, how can they kind of package up that knowledge and, and, and present it back in a way that allows us to kind of look look across the piece and and, and helps them kind of stitch it all together so that's all really positive stuff um and in terms of actually but in terms of actually driving the change it, it you know we sort of learned it's, it's really it's a long it's a long and detailed process it does take you know the kind of classic whole institution approach for senior leadership um but a lot of it just comes down to having really positive conversations in the disciplines looking at that kind of route to change bringing people together so that it feels less high risk not just expecting individual academics to get on with it um and, and kind of removing barriers as much as possible you know changing those policies rewriting the quality you know the quality systems if, that, if that's what's required um and just taking the time to to let let, let, let that happen in its own time and i realize that that can be quite challenging post-pandemic trying to kind of get everything um trying to trying to really lock down that learning but people are tired and, and people need that time to, to really think about it so we've set we've set all that out and i, I commend it to our listeners 
Laurie, obviously one of the things that was accelerated quite specifically is the kind of move online for, of assessment. And, you know, for obvious reasons, I guess we weren't allowed to be in rooms with each other. Um, and, and it feels like that's an aspect where we're definitely not going back because there's not a lot of advantages to being in another room with someone taking an exam unless you really want to watch other people cry. But it generates all sorts of issues around identity theft and cheating and so on, doesn't it? You know, these are, these are, they, these are things that people have got to think about. Yes, they do. And and we see an awful lot of um, rhetoric around students cheating. Um, I I kind of think, well, actually, during the pandemic, one of the things that we saw is this diversification of assessment. And when I so I've been interviewing students throughout the pandemic about their experience. And when it comes to assessment, they say things like, oh, instead of having a sit down exam, I had to go off and do this work and they gave me 24 or 48 hours. And it was really hard because I couldn't just go and look up the answers. So it it speaks to assessment design rather than having, you know, things that catch people cheating. We need to rethink assessment. And, And that speaks to what Debbie was talking about. This isn't about having things in place to cheat. It's about having things in place that assess the right things, having things in place that, enable students to demonstrate the learning if the only Kay Samble's got this great quote she says if if the only worth of doing an assessment is to get marks you need to rethink it and I think that that that's really profound when you think about what we assess and how we assess in higher education we haven't changed it in hundreds of years sitting people down with closed books and saying do the assessment well what happens if you assess students Um, Dave Cormier in Canada says that what does education look like in a world of information abundance. So basically, students have got access to all of this information, and then we isolate them to do assessment. Mm. Why do we isolate them? Why don't we change the assessment? Yes, a kind of version of that debate they must have been having in the 70s, because, you know, I was only born then, um, (laughs) about calculators, right? You know, you, you, you go from assessing someone without a calculator in their hand to how they use the calculator, I guess. It's yeah, interesting but that, stuff. That, but that does speak again to the point that I, that I was making with the widening participation. In the 70s, I didn't have a calculator, but some of the people in my class did. Um, so what's the equivalent of that now? You know, we've got kids in schools and, you know, and students in education who don't have access to broadband, who, who don't have access. You know, they're in data poverty. They do not have access to all of the things that some kids do have. And and I worry about creating, you know, with digital, are we creating new barriers that we just aren't seeing yet? Um, I think during the pandemic, one of the most interesting things in some of the universities I've been working with, and um, I've got a chair at Keele, so I've been working with Keele quite closely. We saw the attainment gap close. You know, and we saw the international student attainment gap close. Um, so, what was happening there? And that's in that's about assessment, and it's not grade just inflation. About, that's what was happening there. <laughs> well, and, and, and that's the other rhetoric: grade inflation. But even, I mean, Exeter University did work on the on the no detriment policies and said it didn't have that much impact. You know, when you actually allow for that, and this wasn't a coming together of of those grades; it was a leveling up to use that phrase it was a leveling up of bame students of international students of disabled students so we need to look at what we were doing one student with adhd turned around to me and said i've really enjoyed doing the exams this year because sometimes when i sat in a hall to do an exam i look out the window at something and then i look back and 20 minutes has gone fascinating fascinating hillary let me ask you a slightly different question i I was talking to someone 
last week and I was saying, look, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, got to worry about a very anxious student body and are there things that we can do so that students are less anxious? And they effectively said to me, well, never did me any harm. And, uh, you know, assessment basically involves stress. So tough. Where do you, where do you sit on that continuum between putting students under pressure and making it really kind of, you know, stress-free and straightforward? I mean, I, I don't think it makes much sense. A lot of the time when I've asked people in the sector about why they still think that, you know, putting students in a lecture theatre under these, like, quite intense time constraints is a helpful thing for them to do. They cite things like, it's good for the workplace or it's good for their future careers and stuff like that. And, I, like, I'm probably in one of the most sort of intense jobs in the sector where I'm just sort of constantly um, trying to to juggle all of these things going on. And it's like, I've never had, I've never had to, you know, in an hour um, really like try and display a month's worth or a year's worth of knowledge that I've sort of learned um, well, you want to come and, and work here <laughs> <laughs> but 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 this is this is the point though it's like I don't have a normal job it, the, you know the stuff that you do you do at Wonky to react so quickly isn't necessarily normal mainstream things no, that happen I mean, it, and it so, definitely is not normal no. yeah and so when you're <laughs> so when you're putting the mass student population under that and expecting them to perform at their best in those conditions it doesn't make sense especially and when institutions are talking about how they're developing curriculums how they're developing ways of learning and i i i do not know how you can sort of marry together that idea of thinking about more collaborative learning styles and trying to innovate how you're teaching and the ways that you're teaching and then saying okay but at the end of that we're going to put a bunch of students in a in a lecture theater put them into or an exam hall rather put them under time constraints and think that they're going to be able to perform their best and you know it's it's even more difficult when you think about how how big the mental health crisis still is for students you know how do you justify wanting to say all that say all of these things about bringing in student support but then you're happy to put them under stress and put them in such conditions that is having a negative impact on their mental health it just doesn't it doesn't sit well together it doesn't make sense I think I think you have I think you have to kind of I mean I think that kind of comment Jim that you experienced is is kind of is sort of axiomatic of the of the sorts of things that happen when time isn't taken to bring people together to really dive into to people's sort of preconceptions and prejudices and biases that they're bringing to this process. Because I don't think that person was wrong in the sense that, of course, if you're diving deep into a subject, if you're doing something that's unfamiliar, if you're, you know, trying to bring together kind of, you know, synthesize complex information, there's, there's an element of stress in that. Of course there is. It's challenging. It's stretching. You know, you should be putting yourself under stress. That's, but that's a kind of positive stress, the kind of stress that leads to learning and growth, not the sort of stress that leads you to have a kind of, you know, like sort of, you know, think that you need to kind of pop some pills and stay up all night and cram. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, and, and I think, and, and particularly when you're thinking about students with, with, with particular kind of other sorts of pressures, you know, their lives are pretty stressful already in a number of ways, you know, lots of juggling home and work, perhaps carrying responsibilities, perhaps, you know, you know, you know, coping with and managing their disability, what, you know, whatever it is. So sort of thinking really carefully about, yes, we want to stretch our students. Yes, we want to stress them, but how do we do that in a way that then generates learning outcomes? Um, and that, and, that, and that's a, Exactly. And that's, a, and that's a sort of, that's a deep conversation because of course we're not saying wrap students in cotton wool, protect them from stress. You know, you know, don't, don't let these fragile flowers have to kind of deal with anything complicated or difficult. Of course we're saying it is complicated and difficult. So let's make it, so, so let's strip out the bits of it that are, that are damaging and, and focus on the bits that are, that are good. When my mother was alive, she went to the doctors and she said, Oh, I didn't trust him. He was looking on Google for the answers. And I was thinking, <laughs> and I was thinking, but I want my medics to have access. And it probably wasn't Google, but I want the medics, for example, to be able to do that in their 
in their everyday life. I want them to be able to not just sort of sit there and think, hmm, I wonder what's wrong with it. What did I learn five years ago at university? I want them to have access what, to, what, you know. What information am I going to manufacture to kind of you know, present the facsimile of knowing because that's what's going to build their confidence rather than kind of actually being comfortable. Yeah. You know, saying, actually, yeah. we need to, need so, to rethink we, the idea of professionalism in this, in this, yeah. in this So authentic assessment is when somebody can use what they've learned in the way that they want to use it when they graduate. And that's not sitting down for three hours in an exam hall. Thing is, though, it's not scalable, is it? Anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> no time for that debate. Uh, <laughs> there's more on this on the site. Debbie's got uh, a kind of thing of the stuff that we've been doing with Adobe. Well worth a look and, a, and, a, and an article on, on, on the site on from Monday that uh, deep dives into some of these issues. So take a look. Can, can I give a plug to my, my colleague Sarah Knight, who's doing a whole load of work on digital assessment as well, and that's going to be out this month. Yes, you can. Now, uh, last week, the Office for Students published uh, almost final proposals for the Teaching Excellence Framework, building on the work, remember that, remember, (laughs) building on the work of Dame Shirley Pierce, whose statutory review sparked a lot of the changes. Earlier this week, Debbie grabbed a cup of java with Shirley P to find out more. Shirley, hi, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You blogged for us this week about the uh, OFS proposals for the new version of TEF. Uh, And of course, as the uh, chair of the independent review of the TEF uh, way, way back uh, in in, in 2019, (laughs) you must have been very pleased to see these proposals finally finally come to the table. Uh, What what were you pleased to see about about what what OFS is suggesting should happen next? Well, I mean, first of all, as you say, I'm really, really pleased to see it there uh, at all and to see that serious consideration has been given to the uh, review findings and recommendations um, as well as to the government's response and that what we have is a really serious set of proposals for enabling TEF to re-emerge as something which uh, really helps uh, uh, improve and enhance the excellence of provision uh, across the sector. So uh, I'm sorry, I'm really pleased it's there, uh, really pleased to read it and uh, probably most important is I'm, I'm really glad that um, the, the, the need to determine a really serious clarity of purpose has been taken on board and that um, the, the idea that the TEF can, should have a primary purpose of enhancing provision has been um, bought by everybody and that's the way it's being designed because form follows function. Unless you're really clear about what it is you want uh, an exercise to do um, and its impact, then uh, you can't make the the best informed decisions about how it should be designed and promoted. And to be clear that enhancing function, uh, enhancing the quality of our educational provision is the core purpose is a big step forward mm. i had calls recently of um, you know looking at these proposals to go back over the original uh, suggestions for the TEF, and there was so much more emphasis on using it to inform student choice and inform employers but it seems that the that the kind of the, the overall intention does seem does seem to have moved on a little bit and i think that that can only be to the good but there's also they also took uh, took your recommendation that there shouldn't be a subject level exercise and um well, you know how do you feel about that well i think um we were we were clear that there were some big risks about the subject level exercise, which might undermine the credibility um, of the TEF exercise as a whole. Um, We, however, were, and I think in every listening session and every part of the call for views, we heard people saying that the subject level information with the um, benchmarks and splits uh, for for subjects were really, really helpful inside institutions for helping um, identify pockets of excellence and pockets of not such good performance and in sharing better practice across an institution internally and shining a light 
um, on, on, on what need, where, where attention needed to be directed. So uh, we were really clear that a subject level exercise had value, but that a subject level rating might bring risks. And I think that's been taken on board. So that's another thing that I'm very happy about. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think sort of dovetails with the gen- dovetails with general direction of travel with OFS and looking at student outcomes by demographic, by subject split, um, yeah. and and uh, perhaps I think institutions may not feel entirely empowered <laughs> when it comes to the volume of data they're going to have to wade through. But it is going to really kind of uh, prompt some quite challenging questions, isn't it? At that kind of at that at that more uh, more salami slice level of, of thinking yeah. about different student experience. Yeah, and I think institutions that have been taking the student experience um, seriously for some time will already have some of that infrastructure in place and are already looking at that kind of data. Um, and this will encourage all to to do that uh, in a more coordinated fashion. Mm. And is there anything that you, you mentioned in your in your article, you said that there's a few potholes ahead. Do you want to uh, elaborate on that? Um, well, the big pothole that I see uh, is um, the proposal for the bottom rating being needs improvement. Um, I, I'm, I, I, we, we worked from the assumption that this is a measure of teaching excellence. This is, a, uh, this is a, an exercise to identify excellence, promote excellence and share best practice. And um, it, seems, it seemed really clear that to us that the gold, silver and bronze ratings didn't do that as well as we might hope and were misunderstood across the um, internationally plus also bronze was being seen not as a measure of excellence but rather a measure of uh, not doing very well and that seemed wrong these are all measures levels of excellence but the bottom level rating must be uh, meets baseline requirements or some sort of uh, indication that it meets the requirements to be registered but but doesn't demonstrate um, marked excellence um, to say it needs improvement seems um, problematic because you aren't able to say what that improvement is. And it's not, I mean, I'm really pleased that can, attention has been given to the relationship between the TEF and the um, regulatory, the, the registration requirements of regulation, because we, we identified a sort of grey area at the bottom end of the TEF ratings. Um, and so that's been identified and and considered but I don't think that the proposal for needs improvement actually addresses that and I I suspect that that's going to be what I've called in the article in my blog a a, a pothole because it's going to raise questions and problems which are going to be tricky for uh, OFS to answer. Brilliant. Shirley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Shirley's article features uh, as part of a a raft of content that we have on the site looking at the uh, OFS uh, approach to B3 student outcomes and the future teaching excellence framework. So do check the show notes and go to the site to find out more. Now, next up, new survey data from the Office for National Statistics this week gave us a little window on the experiences of students in their third year or beyond. Hilary, what did we learn? There were a load of students not unexpectedly um, reporting poor mental health and well-being um, and how that had worsened. And that was that was really interesting, um, given, you know, the discourse around support and how much students were needing extra support um, throughout the pandemic. And, and I think it's well worth saying third year students really felt the brunt of the pandemic, trying to finish um, largely their courses in a time where they were um, having poor working conditions in some case, no access to Wi-Fi or Internet and not having the same sort of support that they would be used to in their final year of university. So lots and lots of interesting things um, were drawn out in in that. And I, I, I bet we've got lots to talk about in that. 
Debbie, we all had a rough pandemic, didn't we? I mean, I've been stuck in this attic for two years. You know, what size violin should we get out for these students? <laughs> um, a, a, a pragmatic violin. Um, I think that... I think that the question really is, is what is the impact going to be in, in the longer term? And, you know, we're all sort of, we're all sort of dealing with that in our own ways. But when, of course, when you're a student at a university, there, you know, in theory, you have a, a, a group of, a group of people around you and, and systems around you that are, that are kind of designed to, you know, in, investigate and rectify if, 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 you know, it's, 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 you know, so I guess, I guess there's a sort of moral um, question about what university should do. I think, you know, there's a caveat to this data, isn't there? Because the response rates were not enormously high. So I think it's, it's so rather than rushing to sort of assume all oh, third year students are in kind of mental health crisis, it's probably incumbent now to say this, this tells us that there might be a problem. Common sense also tells us there might be a problem here. We have, you know, we have in most cases six months, not, you know, probably, you know, rather less than that, actually, to think about what is possible to put in place to perhaps mitigate some of those things. So first of all, to understand the problem as best we can in the time available and then think about what mitigations might be. Jim, on the site, you've um, put a strongly, a strongly worded suggestion that, um, that, that, you know, we need, we need to look at assessment um, again and, and, th- and think about whether there's kind of space for mitigation. I suspect some of this will be about students kind of articulating what they need um, to feel, to, you know, to build their confidence as they go out into the labour market, to, to, feel, to feel like their university experience wasn't... Um, a total waste of time and, and I think it might be rather different for different students and an assessment probably plays a part of that I mean Laurie I don't know I mean you, you know there are a lot of this there are a lot of the, the, the sort of comment pieces aren't there about you know the lost generation and you know lost youth and so on but I mean it does strike me that you know for students that are in their third year as undergraduates that the the the, the that for, for the pandemic, this kind of much longer pandemic than any of us thought it was going to be, to kind of hit throughout that period must be pretty rotten in terms of that kind of, you know, that kind of romantic best years of your life stuff, but also the actual kind of teaching le- and, and learning experience. <laughs> so I think during the pandemic, um, it's it's been pretty grim for students. And, you know, the figures tell us that it's not been easy for staff. And, and again, I'm not going to I'm being pragmatic. But when we look around the sector, I think what it's done is is shown us just how hard lecturers are working to give a decent experience. And it is a lost generation. It's a lost. It's not a lost generation. I think. I think saying that is is a bit disingenuous because what we've found is students connecting in different ways. We found students finding uh, new ways to engage with their peers and finding new skills in terms of how they learn. And lecturers have been finding new ways to teach. And I think there's an awful lot of learning coming out of it. I want us to sort of move forward positively. I don't want to reset the clock, and we certainly can't go back in time. So I, I don't like the rhetoric of a lost generation. I'd rather think of us as, you know what, we've learned an awful lot. And yes, it's been bad for some people, but you know, now we've got to move forward with some really positive takes on this. Some things we've got to ditch. You know, I'd like to see us rethink assessment completely. That's a, that's the top line for me. You know, take that stress out of of learning and teaching. Um, but no, I'm I'm trying to find the positive in the pandemic, and that's very hard. But I think that there are some. And, and Hillary, I mean, look, you know, I mean, I think, you know, what, what Laurie says makes sense, you know, kind of focus on the positive and so on. But there is a danger, isn't there, in higher education that because those of us that are in it are kind of operating a conveyor belt that it's really easy to look at new students, first year students, and to focus on them and making their experience good. And then to almost kind of subconsciously write off this kind of this particular group that this survey was fashioned around. 
Yeah, I, I think there's something really important about understanding the cumulative sort of um uh like the cumulative impact of what students experience year on year on year and that's been sort of one of our key criticisms um coming around the NSS that you know when you think about um students experience I think sometimes because of the recruitment practices and then because of the graduate outcomes that first and final year is sort of highlighted or, or heralded as these sort of areas where lots of effort is put in to try and get the best sort of um the best sort of you know look at the university best sort of look at the students but actually those years in the middle where lots of stuff happens to students um is a really important part to understand how students come in what they experience and what that means for when they finish their degree and finish their time at university if they choose to and I think there's something really important about making sure that we understand the level of support that is needed throughout to ensure that we are keeping in touch with what these students need and how they need to be supported as they go on throughout their their educational experience and so I know that there's there's lots to try and find you know positive aspects of this but I think you know this isn't just a pandemic thing for a very long time we've needed to understand that cumulative impact and um I don't think we've gone deep into it enough at all and I, I think that is largely due to you know a, a larger focus that we're seeing um at the OFS particularly around outcomes um and and that continued sort of drive and push towards student recruitment and what it looks like to get students in get them in sort of on this high and then sort of think that you can now leave them to going with the university experience untouched by all of the things that come in between and that that then add up when you are you're finishing your your degree or your course or um your educational experience now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david kernahan welcome to yes but does it correlate the podcast segment that was ambushed by a cake and lived to tell the tale With all the end-of-cycle excitement, this week's correlation question is a UCAS special. In the 2021 cycle, does the number of UK main scheme applications at a provider have any relation to the number of those applications a provider accepts? Do providers with a larger intake get more applications? Or is something else going on? Yes, but does it correlate? I'm happy to say I don't think there is a strong positive relationship. I, I because I was looking at some of the things that were on uh, on David's data data sheet uh, today and sort of trying to make sense of it, and I was like, I don't think that's as strong as as people make out. Um. I don't know. I I would think that it has some weight to it. I think especially when you're thinking about institutions that are particularly worried about not getting as many students in, um, there might be something around you know if you see an influx of uh, applications in a certain course area that you don't feel has enough students and uh, maybe there's a correlation but I don't know that I don't know that I know enough about how they might weigh that out as opposed to thinking about what they're going to do with that course going forward but I think there's a moderate there's moderate weight to it I think yeah And as you'll be able to see from the chart on the podcast page of the website, there is indeed a very strong correlation. R squared is a spectacular 0.96. Of course, this doesn't mean that there is a direct one-to-one relationship. I've included an X equals Y line to show that most places get many, many, many more applications than they offer places to. 
The most popular providers to apply to and to be placed at are both in Manchester, the University of Manchester and Manchester Metropolitan University. Data is from the 2021 UCAS end of cycle data, and the plot omits the numerous small providers that are not registered with the UK Higher Education Regulator. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. Now, finally, a new report from the QAA finds a sector split on the impact of digital provision on students. Hilary, tell us about this. Yeah, so this is particularly interesting given um, the ongoing discourse around what the future of, of teaching and learning looks like um, and student engagement on a, on a wider level. We know from the pandemic that digital provision um, came in in a really emergency remote way. I, I heard that terminology at a conference that I attended a while ago and I thought that really captured what the pandemic um, looked like in terms of the digital provision. It was emergency remote learning. Um, but now that we are starting to sort of adjust to it and understand the benefits and and maybe the drawbacks of it it was really interesting that in this report there was quite an interesting split um between how people were feeling about digital provision and um, one of the stats that really caught me was the 41 percent um felt that asynchronous learning increased student engagement and 43 percent felt it lowered student engagement and i thought that was a an unsurprising but an interesting split and perhaps it suggests something about accessibility but not engaging um and and there's lots to think about actually as we go to towards thinking about how do we do digital provision right and how do we do it in a way that actually um, continues to to um, serve what many people are currently arguing about what could be perceived as quality when it comes to um, digital teaching, learning and general student engagement. Laurie, let me ask you this question, right? So, I mean, I think every, most people accept that, you know, computers exist and, <laughs> you know, there's a bit of blended, there was plenty of blended learning going on before the pandemic, right? People were watching videos on the bus and all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to this question about synchronous versus asynchronous, if there's a whole bunch of people who really, really want kind of synchronous to be kind of in the room or in the space at the same time as others, and that works for them. And then there's a bunch of other people who really, really need kind of asynchronous, they kind of like the pace of that and so on are they actually compatible can we wedge those students together and just offer a blend or do we have to do we have to have a kind of new split uh, 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 you know kind of you know the old split was in person or or, or or distance maybe the new split has to be kind of synchronous students and, and asynchronous students doesn't it well that works we can do that <laughs> it's the thing it, that, this is the thing that um that i get really vexed with with some of the the, the commentary on what's been going on is this idea of in-person and distance or you know asynchronous how, how is this what we're doing now not in person you know and that uh, uh, yeah I, I know what people will say but you know i feel that i'm having a chat i've never met anybody on this call but we're having a chat we've been laughing um and i feel present um so we can do that and we can be synchronous without being in the same room and this recording is going to be going out and I'm hoping that, you know, at least one or two people might enjoy some of it. And that's going to be asynchronous and the experience won't be the same, but you'll still get the same content out, I think. So it's a really difficult situation to sort of say you have to go one way or the other. And I think that a lot of people would like us to see it in opposition, but it's not. It's a it's a continuum and it's been a continuum. You know, when I went to university, I was a mature student and you know, I was really excited to do some of this work on a computer, you know, that I had to go in and, and use. And there were some things that were written in um, bespoke computer programs. And I went and looked at them and it was great. And I thought, this is the future. 
and it's been the future for 25 years. Um, people will enjoy it, people won't, but let's not set them up in opposition. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Hilary, Laurie, Debbie, DK, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.